Welcome to Terragrams. Hi, I'm Craig Brazone and I'll be your host for the 10th delivery of Terragrams. Today we're in Cambridge, Mass and are joined by Paula Merig. Paula is an assistant professor of landscape architecture at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. She gained much of her experience while working in the office of Martha Schwartz Incorporated, but has since moved on to found her own practice, Wanted, with Michel Adrien and Thierry Baudouin. Her studio has had two gardens built for the International Garden Festival of Metis in Quebec, Canada, and is presently working on a roof deck for a 700-unit tower in Miami, as well as a master plan for development near Shanghai. It's a pleasure that you've taken the time to join our show, Paula. Welcome to Terragrams. Hi. I noticed that a couple years ago you gave a lecture entitled Asphalt Sucks. I didn't see or hear it, but from the title I suspect that you have a few issues regarding this material. What's the problem? It's everywhere, <laughs> and no one does anything about it. I think that's really the bottom line. And um, if you look at our landscape, then asphalt is everywhere, on parking lots, driveways, uh, the road. Uh, yet at the same time, uh, asphalt as a material is considered a hated material. Uh, and as a good friend of us says, uh, asphalt sucks. <laughs> Uh, he's actually a doctor, so th <laughs> that counts for something. And um, and we actually, um, this was in the beginning uh, of our practice before Thierry Baudouin joined us. And uh, Michelle and I, uh, as as girls, have a kind of an interest in the asphalt universe. Um, and hence, uh, we we made a proposal to to reintroduce uh, the asphalt an asphalt project as a garden mm -hmm. in, in the Metisse International Festival, which is a, a great opportunity. It was a competition, and we won that, and uh, that garden had really great acclaim. And what we basically did is that we um, used the typical vernacular of the road, the asphalt, the curbs, uh, the lines, the words, and made it uh, like a road gone mad. And then we flooded the whole mm -hmm. thing. So it became uh, a fountain, which uh, in essence is one of the most luxurious um, pieces in either a garden or in a public open space. So, and, that was, and that was really great. And they kind of initiated a follow-up um, in, in a second project. Uh, in this garden festival, uh, we spent all the money on the ground plane, mm -hmm. which is asphalt, and they asked if we wanted to uh, do a new project there. And that became Shushu. We called mm -hmm. that Shushu. On the same asphalt plane? Yes. Yeah. And uh, Michelle is from uh, Venezuela. And at that time, there was a great coup. Everybody was on the road uh, protesting, uh, which, of course, was uh, about uh, the, the, the presence of the president, Chavez. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a really, I was, uh, I was at times part of that demonstration, and that was a really a great experience. And what we wanted to do is to really celebrate the road as a place for expressing a political mm -hmm. attitude. And we did that by, uh, by actually the absence of people. And mm -hmm. we, we collected uh, large hundreds and hundreds of shoes, uh, many different kinds, and, and, and conceived this plate of asphalt as a highway and placed these shoes on it. Uh, guided on the side by uh, military boots mm -hmm. and uh, traffic cones really to to indicate uh, political 
um, disagreement or political oppression at times. So it was really a celebration. Mm -hmm. It was a, a great, a great project to do. And in fact, uh, the asphalt become, became, the asphalt project became bigger and bigger. Um, and uh, we started thinking more about it. And actually, um, so the lecture was one. Um, Leslie Johnstone is coming out with a book in June on gardens in Canada, where we talk more about kind mm -hmm. of our position on asphalt. And we wrote an asphalt manifesto, actually, which <laughs> is going to be published in that, in that piece. And finally, um, uh, to, th to think of the asphalt landscape uh, as our most important public landscape, uh, much more than parks, we use it on a daily basis, yet at the same time, it's underexplored, under-experimented, uh, uh, under and it's this uh, status, mm. and it is this, um, this archetypical space that is unexplored. Um, for that reason, however, in movies and music and art, uh, the asphalt landscape is everywhere. It's really part of our contemporary culture. Mm -hmm. But it's so surprising to see that there is so little experimentation in both the architecture or the landscape mm -hmm. architecture or the urban design professions. So for that reason, I uh, wanted to bring a new light to this. And uh, I wrote a grant proposal for a scholarship, which I won just recently, and uh, to, to make an asphalt website mm -hmm. uh, that, that will uh, focus uh, on the condition in the United States more than in uh, Europe for a number of reasons. One is that uh, there's an infinite, uh, a seemingly infinite availability of space, so parking lots and the asphalt landscape is infinite, which it is not in Europe. Um, and also the pervasiveness of asphalt as a material for the car and for the road. There's nothing else mm -hmm. that really can go uh, under the car, unlike Europe, where there's really much more diverse history mm. of that. Um, so, and this website uh, is going to be slightly girlish. <laughs> so, uh, and really because, of course, the, the, the asphalt... Uh, can be pink? No, actually, <laughs> but we could... You know, we could, we, we, one of the things that we're going to have uh, by uh, w w one of my students, Mary Leidecker, she's going to mm, make, make a mapping of the asphalt history mm. uh, geographically as an embroidery. So mm -hmm. I think that would be typically mm -hmm. considered a girly, a girly. Uh, as, uh, and um, we'll have uh, illustrator James Krause involved and um, a number of students, but we really want this website to, to become inspirational for the design profession. That's really crucial for that. How, how do you think we can get asphalt out of the, its connotation with suburban development and strip malls? How do you think we can get it out of that connotation into that, another connotation of gardens or luxurious spaces or even public place for people? How can we change? How can we Change, uh, yeah. Well, I, I think, of course, one through writing and, and bringing the word out. A uh, second one would be to really do projects and uh, uh, promote these uh, projects as alternative ways of uh, looking at the asphalt universe and, and make sure that they are accessible to people. Physically, how do you actually make asphalt beautiful if we assume that people don't think it's beautiful right now? Mm. By, I think really by manipulating it and by treating it differently than mm -hmm. it's been treated before. 
uh, and also to really continue research on other materials than asphalt as well. So it's not to get out of this dominance, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But of course the price and the economic uh, component right. of asphalt is very persuasive because it's the cheapest material. Right. But I think definitely it's possible to replace asphalt with other materials. Mm -hmm. And so replacing of other materials, uh, experimenting with different ways of application. So one hand we could replace all of our roads with some other cheaper materials. Roads would be materials difficult. And take it from there and put it into our public spaces. That's a good idea. Mm -hmm. So it becomes more appropriated by the people and it becomes more of a public space making uh, material. I think that would a, be a, a road, great idea. A vehicular travel material. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a square, a small plaza behind um, Peter Zumpdor's uh, Museum of Modern Art in Bregen, the mm -hmm. cube. It's asphalt, but really black asphalt. Mm -hmm. It's not sort of old gray asphalt. It's black, and it has a cafe and a terrace, um, and it's beautiful, fantastic, because it feels almost liquid, and it rolls a little bit. It's not a super flat. Mm -hmm. I mean, asphalt is really a fantastic material because it's pliable. Uh, you can introduce topography in asphalt much more easy, mm -hmm. actually, than uh, poured in place concrete. Um, it has uh, aggregates, so you can really manipulate all the aggregates that are in, 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 in uh, asphalt. And for example, color can be introduced with a recycled glass or uh, mm, Lego pellets and that have really durable uh, colors, mm -hmm. uh, which of course color in a landscape is a difficult, is a difficult uh, item. Um, I think paint, there's new products on the market to make uh, pedestrian crossings, which are basically uh, mats that you can reheat the asphalt and press these down mm -hmm. inside the asphalt. So these mats can have completely different mm -hmm. kind of graphics and actually not wear down as much mm -hmm. over time as a regular mm -hmm. uh, white paint uh, would do. Mm -hmm. So these are kind of small details that, that can actually help. Have you been able to incorporate more asphalt into other projects you're working on? We actually um, have proposed to change asphalt for gravel in a, in a project, and uh, um, it was actually a, gr a great project. Um, pe some people in uh, Concord wanted to redo their property and include um, housing for uh, eight sports cars. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them was a Ferrari, um, and a tennis court, and, and, and that in a kind of new growth oak and pine forest. So to deal with kind of uh, the road and the driveway on a domestic scale was mm -hmm. very interesting. And so you're using gravel instead of asphalt? Yes, or we did, yeah. instead of gravel? Uh, gravel instead right. of asphalt, yeah. Right. And actually also, in, in one of our proposals, we proposed a dirt road uh, to go through <laughs> this kind of new growth mm -hmm. forest mm -hmm. to go to a Hansel and Gretel shed <laughs> that could house the cars. Your studio, Wanted, has a peculiar name. Where did it come from? Um, again, this was in the beginning. Uh, we were going to uh, Caracas, Venezuela, to climb a mountain, but we took that opportunity to also promote ourselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, we um, made a flyer that we would send out to everybody we knew there uh, called Wanted. Uh, Wanted was mentioned on one side, and on the other side was mentioned uh, a site and a client. So we really wanted to do a number of small projects in the city of Caracas that were in the public realm. 
Uh, and actually, three projects rolled out of mm -hmm. that. Uh, one of them we're currently still working on. And uh, and then the people in Caracas kept calling us Subusca, which is mm -hmm. Spanish for wanted. And we had referred wanted to the Wild West <laughs> posters of seeking outlaws. And I actually think uh, there's a really great connotation with that name, uh, a little bit the Wild West and the outlaws, but also know that we that we want something that we we Bi want business looking for new, new projects yes of course <laughs> and money and money would be <laughs> money would be a good thing so it has been work for us and i don't i i'm not a big fan of uh uh companies that are called uh, as uh, acronyms or by people's last mm -hmm. names because i actually feel that working in a team as we do now the three of us it's really inspiring, and um, it's never possible that in one person are all the qualities mm -hmm. there to, to make a really uh, great office. And I think that the three of us have great qualities and work on each other. So, you know, two and two is not four, but two and two is always five. So mm -hmm. the fact that we work together brings a, a bigger and more interesting project to the surface than just being individual. Mm -hmm. So. So therefore, uh, an, an office that has a name that somehow uh, is not related to a person, but mm -hmm. much more that would has the has the, the possibility to in include a group of people is, is important. And uh, how does the how do the three of you operate in the office? Do you take different roles? Yeah. Equal, equal, uh, have equal skills. We have, have all different skills mm -hmm. actually, and. Um, uh, but we're also all foreigners. Eh? I'm mm -hmm. from the Netherlands. Thierry is from uh, uh, Quebec, so he has a French background. And Michel Adrian is from Venezuela. Mm -hmm. Also, Thierry and uh, Michel are architect, uh, have mm -hmm. an architectural background with a great sensibility and affinity for the landscape. But I'm, I think, more born and bred landscape. I'm mm -hmm. the daughter of a farmer, so <laughs> you couldn't go anywhere else than that. And... Um, and this all comes to the surface uh, in the way that we work. I have been in the United States the longest. My English is the best. <laughs> so that means that I am usually the one who, who finally does the, the end writing. Right. And writing is, has been important for us. But, but the writing is always a compilation of, I make extensive notes what everybody says, and then somehow it gets digested and congested <laughs> into a piece of writing. And for me, writing is important because there's a writing as a way of thinking and to bring more depth to the project. So I think that's my component. Design goes with all three of us. Mm -hmm. uh, we usually, one of us takes the lead in the project um, out of efficiency, out of you know client contact. Mm -hmm. um, um, but I think we all bring um, more skills to the table. Thierry is the best in using a versatility in programs. And Michi is absolutely AutoCAD queen. What she can mm -hmm. do in AutoCAD is just amazing. Um, but I think ultimately the way we work is that we don't work from nine to five together, actually none of us. Also because we all have a, a mother and fatherhood task, teaching tasks. So we actually meet at strategic moments, we brainstorm, uh, and we uh, divide tasks and then we come back mm -hmm. together. And through email and phone, it has been uh, really important to us. 
Um, and the other thing, actually, we're also friends uh, out of work, mm -hmm. and we really try to separate these Still. things. Still, mm -hmm. yeah, it's actually quite amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that's it's been really precious right. for us. Do you work exclusively on landscape projects, or are you also working on architectural projects? We are also two thirds of your entity is architecturally uh, trained. We, we architectural projects are definitely a big part of our office as well. Yeah. But I think the way how uh, I think it's the project that have kind of this this combination of pieces. Yeah, for example, with the, we do a project in Venezuela, a Humboldt project, uh, which really deals a lot with architecture and to then try to find the niches in which landscape can play a role in this mm -hmm. project. And I think that's what we're really good at as a as a group together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you see the landscape, the two always influencing one another? Yeah. The landscape contaminating the building of the building. Yeah. And to give you an example, uh, also in the earlier phases of our uh, project, uh, we were infiltrating parking lots with cracks, <laughs> and they were, you know, cracks that go from the top to the bottom and would allow light and vegetation and rocks and really become kind of uh, an umbilical cord through this big parking mm -hmm. structure. Yeah, and I think those, those cr and, and they have actually resurfaced in the Casa Divo in a much smaller scale. But I think that the cracks, the landscape cracks in a built object will, will, will accompany us for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Your young office. How do you sustain yourself as a young office looking for work and trying to to make it? It's a juggle, I think, and it's at times hard. Um, but teaching uh, is good for us for a number of reasons because it uh, provides us a, a regular income, uh, but also in um, a kind of independence uh, and an... Uh, an independence for projects, so to not compromise too much in a project, mm -hmm. so that that allows us actually an independence that's mm -hmm. been important. Um, so that's been uh, good, and of course we all also work, you know, in a family ma manner. So there's partners also, you know, participating uh, uh, in the whole mixture. What are the hurdles? What are the real difficulties? Time management. <laughs> I think really time management is difficult. Um, and um, I mean, in the past, we were working anywhere between 50 and 70 and 80 hours right. per week. And once you have the responsibility for a family, that is impossible. That is absolutely out of the question. Therefore, our kids are our first priorities and their well-being is our first, for all of us, our first priorities. So when the bell rings, that's it. Mm -hmm. We cannot continue any longer. Uh, at the same time, we have a flexible work schedule, so there's different times of the day where we can work, which also includes nighttime. Uh, another piece of that puzzle is that we will not labor over contracts. We have a kind of boilerplate contract, mm -hmm. and that's actually often related to a design round. Uh, our clients are uh, uh, everywhere, so 
to do a push on a project and uh, a book at the end of do a push do a round a design round on the project and have a book at the tail and we call that a design round mm -hmm. and often we kind of um, based on the, the client's desires, uh, the mm, design fees available, we allocate uh, a design round. The project kind of tells you how, how many of those mm -hmm. will happen. And that has to not spend a week on writing a contract. Uh, so time management right. is really crucial in that. Setting up an, an, a practice here, especially for us being three foreigners, is really hard. Right. And it really it requires it requires um, persistence, and not to give up when things go bad. Um, I, I was very close on giving up landscape architecture completely last year or mid of last year, when three projects died on us. Mm -hmm. And you invest so much time and energy, and then they don't they don't move forward. That you think really think like, what am I doing this for? There's no reason. There's no fun anymore. Mm -hmm. So I was I was really close on giving up everything. But then you know, there's not much other things that I can do <laughs> <laughs> besides landscape architecture. Or waiting tables. Well, that's not a bad one. I used <laughs> to be a bartender, and I'm actually damn good at it. <laughs> actually. Uh, drinking and chatting <laughs> and getting paid for it is not a bad combination, right, I think. Right. So. I think part of the difference is also the idea of invention. And here in North America, it seems as though invention is much harder to uh, get accepted. Yeah. And in Europe, or parts of Europe, perhaps the more metropolitan areas, invention is assumed to be part of the process, that there's an unknown result. And hence, there are more competitions and more cities or public institutions willing to take a risk on the unknown. I think that's absolutely true. And here the risk is really uh, mediated and managed by the distribution of projects yes. to the, the firms that are older, more experienced, have a bigger portfolio, and perhaps uh, also more conventional work and more predictable. I think that's absolutely true. And uh, if I could give a message... <laughs> then uh, it would be you people out there, if you hear this, give young people in starting <laughs> offices more work and more commissions. I think that's absolutely true. And it's, it's also a little bit strange because in a way, popular culture in America always picks up on what's new and what's different and what's experimental and that becomes hip and out there. But in the landscape architecture profession and and perhaps to some extent also in the architecture mm -hmm. profession that doesn't happen so much and it's kind of strange so does that mean that as landscape architects and as architects are we not embedded enough in mainstream professions i don't know what that what question that raises well i think it's a, perhaps the ephemerality of pop culture and it changes very radically. You see it in clothes. You see it in now digital mechanisms. And landscape and architecture are permanent entities. Permanent, often changing, but they're permanent. They're long-term. And I think we're still, well, we, uh, North America, in general, people are still cautious about making a very whimsical risk or taking a very whimsical approach on a very large budget. I think the risk is, is different, therefore the, the pop culture, which tends to change very radically, it doesn't enter in on the more permanent projects, mm -hmm. like, like the parks or the... Yeah, 
the public buildings. Yeah, but maybe it's, I mean, it would be interesting to see how you could conceive of a park and having components of uh, immediate change in it. I mean, I think you kind mm. of introduce a possibility how to, you know, given a kind of stable condition that perhaps there might be a new idea there to, mm. to have components in there that are constantly changing. Right, but that's a totally different dis dis discussion about sort of management. How do we manage, how do we manage our landscapes and who manages them? And, how to train them to actually manage something that's supposed to change, and yeah. it seems like it should be as natural, and that we should be making more landscapes, more urban landscapes, especially that are evolving, because I think that's what we're missing. And perhaps that touches upon some of the research you're doing now about the urban wild. Uh, how do we bring the urban wild into the city, mm -hmm. or how do we bring the wild into the city? I think it's. I mean, to to continue that subject. Uh, the amount of mulch being distributed <laughs> in the United States is incredible. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, this multiplication <laughs> of all our sp outside spaces is uh, appalling. I mm -hmm. find it true. I mean, I find it mesmerizing. Mm -hmm. But in essence, I find it appalling uh, because it, it suppresses any kind of spontaneous growth. Mm -hmm. Uh, it also um, does not allow for any rich development of vegetation with a, a herb layer and a shrub layer and a tree layer. Uh, and it makes our landscape sterile. <laughs> Ster sterile. No, not to mention stink. <laughs> <laughs> well, the newest, the newest mulch on the market is called septic mulch. That's septic mulch. Septic mulch. Oh. And absolutely nothing grows through that, apparently. I well, mulch in some forms is actually a good thing. Like the compost in, in Switzerland we're starting to use, well, we've been using for a while, um, this compost mulch that comes from the recycling center where organic matter is, is torn up and shredded and it gets put back on onto, onto gardens as a weed protective barrier, but also it's a, a, a nutrient Yeah, that's layer. a good one. But the way how you see it <laughs> happen in the United yeah. States is that you have one token a shrub of some <laughs> kind, it could be a burning bush or a persithia, and then you'll have an, an ocean of mulch, <laughs> preferably cedar mulch because it's nice and red. red. But you can make any mulch red these days. You can make any mulch, that's right, they, they dye them, that's correct. Right. Yeah. Not to say uh, a rubber, uh, the recycled <laughs> right. tires in the right. color that is right. the new well, that's not the so new bad. Mulch. That's not so bad, but I like it actually. Yeah. You're listening to Terragrams, and our guest is Paula Neve, who is an assistant professor of landscape architecture at the Harvard's Graduate School of Design, as well as a founding partner in the firm Wantis. And you have two daughters, your mother. How do your daughters play a role in your office or in your research? Uh, it's a very good question. I mean, they're always there. Eh? They, they. Uh, Thierry is also my husband, so they're always part of us and part of the work mm -hmm. that we do. And we, at the breakfast table, have a design discussion, so you have two discussions at the same time. <laughs> one about wild nature in the city versus... Cornflakes. Uh, Cornflakes, <laughs> yeah, or a spill, or... Uh, no, 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 I don't want to eat, I don't want to eat. Uh, so, uh, so you become really versatile, that's <laughs> one. And uh, with m Michelle... You're always thinking on multiple levels. At least two, <laughs> yes. At least two plateaus. Yeah. 
And do you, do you think the role, the role that a man has in a practice or profession is different than the role that a woman has? I don't see that in our profession, in our, in our threesome, mm -hmm. the case. I mean, I think it's more what you bring yourself to the table and kind of where you find, what pieces of a project you find uh, attracted mm -hmm. to. And sometimes, you know, it's really people skills that are, I mean, Thierry is excellent in uh, brainstorming about an alternative uh, solution for a problem. He's, he's much, much better than that than I am. Uh, Michelle is really, really good in uh, uh, sensing what a client needs and following up on mm -hmm. that. It's, re it's really fantastic. So I think we all bring our own kind of mm -hmm. personal rather than gender issues to the table. And on the other hand, do you as a woman with two children have any, any special challenges that men don't have in the practice? Oh, well, you're asking me to compare my husband with other no, men, no, <laughs> and I can, I mean, I can, uh, and I think Thierry is, a, is a, an incredible father and uh, very much present in uh, the care of the life, the care of the children, um, I think much more than, you know, many other men I know, and I, I'm very appreciative of that. Mm -hmm. um, For a woman to be a, a strong practitioner and have a really long-term uh, plan in the practice? Does it take having a husband who's like that, or can they forge out uh, on their own without the, that uh, um, symbiotic support? It's crucial uh, once you have children, and let me backtrack for a second, mm -hmm. okay? If women are listening, especially students who are interested in children, do not get a kid by yourself. I've been there. Do not go that way. Get a friend, a mother. It doesn't matter, but get somebody else to do that with you because it's too damn hard. Um, having said that, um, to be a practitioner uh, in landscape architecture and you have children, a good support from your partner is required to actually be a practitioner and be out there in the world. And, and to give you an example, um, uh, over the last uh, year or two, we had a number of trips to China uh, for projects. Um, and that's brutal. I mean, that's really hard when you do that, when you have really young children, to be out of a domestic situation for a long time. And you cannot do that without the understanding and flexibility of uh, your partner. In our case, we switched off these trips, so that was good, mm -hmm. but it remains hard for the, for the person who stays at home. So um, Not to mention hard for the person that goes because they become detached from their family unit. Yes, yeah, you, you miss them. Well, there is also relief to that sometimes <laughs> because, or a, a joy to have a, a moment of a respite, I think. <laughs> Uh, but, the, but the missing component is always there. So do you think the practice in general treats women well? Or is there opportunity for the, in the practice for women to, say, work part-time and still maintain a real commitment? We had uh, a year ago, maybe two years ago, a discussion here in school for the Women in Design group. And the students, and there's a lot of female students in our school, and they felt it inspiring to see that there is an alternative practice possible. And so they were very appreciative of us explaining our mm -hmm. situation. 
um, because in a lot of places you cannot and there is really a requirement to be uh, present in an office uh, for 50 hours a week and mm -hmm. definitely in the Martha Schwartz's office where I worked in the past that was the case or 70 hours a week it's really hard to maintain uh, a limited uh, hours in an office when you have a family. I think it's, it's hard. Mm -hmm. but, but to follow up on that, I think uh, if you see how many women get come out of school uh, and go into the landscape there are a lot. Right now, there's a lot. And which More I than think men. Yes, from here, definitely. Mm -hmm. so which I think is fantastic. But for, for employers to keep these women, they need to be flexible. Otherwise, they will not have these women as part mm -hmm. of their office. And a lot of these women are interested in motherhood, mm -hmm. and a lot of these women are interested in working uh, a component of their time. Mm -hmm. So flexible work hours is, is crucial, you know, possibly working from home. Uh, so I really think that the 9 to 5 uh, presence in the office is actually an outdated mm -hmm. uh, scenario, and I think that needs to drastically be changed. Mm -hmm. And is the university responding to these types of needs? In what way? Uh, working uh, Allowing for mothers to still maintain roles in the university setting. They have actually, yes. Professors. Yes, they actually have a really great program. In fact, uh, when I was asked to become a professor here, which is what, uh, a year ago or so, uh, uh, I was also pregnant. <laughs> and so it was over a year and a half ago. And uh, Ellen Altul actually mentioned, oh, you can have your first semester off, <laughs> uh, paid for. And uh, I, I thought it was so such a great... you start with maternity leave. Yeah, you would start with maternity leave. <laughs> you begin and with since with my first, ch first child, I was laid off during my maternity leave, mm. um, I felt uh, this was a great offer, but I did not t take him up on that. Are there many role models? women who are driving very few practices. actually i think very few i'm talking worked, to my knowledge in europe and here and there is really very you few. work for martha certainly she's she plays some type of a model i think that martha plays a role yeah i think that martha plays a role as a role model in the world of landscape architecture i think that role is also also tainted mm. as not everything is known by the outside world but she sticks her head out. She uh, has been doing that for uh, a long time. And uh, there are some really fantastic projects coming out of the office. So I think she really fulfills that role. Another person I can think of is Gabi Kiefer. She has mm -hmm. an office in Germany and does really great work. Yes, that's right. Uh, I did, think she's a role she model. She does not have a does family, have to family. my latest knowledge, mm -hmm. but she might have now. That I don't know. Locally here in Boston, Carol Johnson has been a pillar of the landscape yes. architecture community for yep. decades. Yeah, but I don't know her personally. Mm -hmm. Mickey Kim. Yeah. There. But there are few. Yeah. yeah. Are there other practitioners that you see as influential now in your work? Yeah, I think. Uh, I love the way Adrian Geuze of West Aid thinks and uh, how uh, Remco has thinks. They have always been uh, great, uh, inspiring persons because it's not so much, it's really about how you think about the world around you. And as a designer or as someone who thinks about the outside space, how you can respond to that. And therefore, I think that being a landscape architect, it's 
it's really fantastic to be in this day and age of landscape architecture because you really can immediately intervene in the content of our culture. And I, I, I think that's exhilarating. The two examples you just you just state are Dutch practitioners. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on? What's I think home, homesickness, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there is... But I wouldn't um, disagree with you, uh, given their importance. What is it about sort of the Dutch condition that makes design uh, more important, or critical design more important and more accepted? Uh, definitely the Dutch politics support that. And there is a great financial resources uh, and responsibilities to develop ideas on certain levels without necessarily implementing them immediately. So the idea of design as research, as research uh, has a grounded history in the, in the Netherlands and in Dutch politics. And here, how do you think the American condition or North American condition differs from the Dutch condition in landscape architecture? I think one, there's much more grassroots initiatives and um, private funding and fundraising and public awareness or public initiatives uh, that uh, has effects in the landscape. And I think that is much less in, uh, definitely in Holland, the case, or, or Europe, where uh, private entities would donate money to, mm -hmm. to establish new landscapes or to uh, commission um, design as a research. And how does being Dutch affect your work here in Boston and outside of Boston? Yeah, it's hard. I think it's hard. Is that I, I think, and I speak for myself right now, you know, <laughs> that I come from uh, the, the perspective that all landscape is constructed. Uh, actually, literally so. Uh, while in the United States, there is often a fantasy of nature and the pastoral. So it would require intellectual gymnastics <laughs> to marry these. <laughs> but at the same time, I think that we usually develop more than one idea for a client. And we, d we do that with the three of us. And we, so there's really different influences in a scheme. And we propose these mm -hmm. to the clients. And depending on their uh, responses, we, we continue working. Mm -hmm. Are they variations of an idea, or are they really three They're usually ideas? three different ideas. Yeah. And where do these, how do you get the ideas? Where do they come from? You reach, you sort of meet a site, and you start a project. What's the first thing that you look for? Ideas can come from anywhere, um, but they often come from a client. And um, again, the Casa Diva project, the clients are wild about sport. And they, they travel the world to see uh, the, the, the World Soccer Club, and I mean, these are in Venezuela. And so when they asked us to design uh, their residence on a plot of land, the first thing to do was to conceive the whole thing as the dugout of, mm -hmm. a, of a field. So the building is a dugout, there's a big open space to to play any kind of sport. So that's kind of the, 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 the base mm -hmm. or the germ of the idea. Um, another example, so this kind of really comes from the client. Right. Uh, another example well, is... Well, the, the, the client didn't suggest that they wanted a house 
as a dugout, did they? No, they did not. But we presented <laughs> it to them, and they loved it. <laughs> so. Sort of came from the client. <laughs> sort of came. So, and also there is a sense of humor. I mean, a sense of humor is always good for us. So that was that was. Okay, you get an idea, or you get ideas. How do you recognize a good one? Well, I think that requires practice, and it's uh, that's practice because you base it on what you've seen before. Mm -hmm. And we've not, we have no interest in doing stuff that's been that's already been done mm -hmm. because there's no pleasure anymore in discovery. There's no pleasure anymore in developing a germ germ of an idea into an actual reality. So. To, to find something that's unique is mm -hmm. crucial to us. Uh, but often that idea is grounded in a, in a condition. So in the case of Venezuela and the Humboldt project is that um, uh, Caracas is a city in the valleys, this long elongated valley. And for me, coming from Holland, which is as flat as a pancake, topography is you know, incredibly sexy. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time, the whole city is a series of cut and fill, and was a result of the, the condition of a retaining wall. And the Humboldt project is all about the retaining wall, which is uh, unengaged at best. So this project really turns that upside down and said, okay, let's take this retaining wall and re reinterpret it such that the whole project is tied with that. Mm -hmm. And we actually started calling that the Mobius band, uh, which is a, a belt that is wearable on, on two sides. It's uh, really simple and really ingeniously. So this retaining wall infiltrates the project and turns upside down and has different colors, different programs associated with it, and goes in and out of the building. So, so it, it so it starts from uh, recognition and the pleasure of topography, uh, understanding there is a negative component to that in the city, and then reworking that into a concept that then can can drive the whole mm -hmm. project. I usually or often ask our guests whether they feel the responsibility or burden to invent. I'm going to ask you, do you feel the responsibility or burden not to repeat something that's been done before? It's not a bur no, it's not a burden. It's just, I find it boring. <laughs> <laughs> I find it boring to, uh, to do something that's already been done before. If it's a repeat <laughs> of our own work, we're all for that. <laughs> we're all it's for re that. Recycling is good. A recycling of our ideas is really good. But I tell you, good ideas are hard to come by. Yeah. And I think if you have them and if you recognize them, it's precious to to keep them alive. And you know, it happens often that the ideas do not do not come to full fruition in a project for any, for a number of reasons. So to 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 remember that idea and re-implement that in a in a new project is is important. How do you see this work of your studio evolving in the years to come? More projects and bigger projects and well-paid projects. That's one, mm -hmm. and we will continue uh, to work uh, everywhere in the world. So that requires a flexibility for us to 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 make our family situation uh, happen to travel, uh, but also to really identify areas of work that we uh, want to work in. And um, I think what is for all of us the case is that we very much enjoy small projects, whether that uh, Thierry is really interested in uh, exhibitions. Um, Michel is uh, interested in uh, in small-scale architecture, uh, and I'm and I share that with both of them. Interested in kind of landscape installations, and that's the small, but also the bigger the bigger projects as well. 
where you think long term and strategic and and um, master planning and resort planning. So kind of this to, to to keep these different skills in our project is uh, really great. And if I uh, speak for myself, that currently there's three areas of uh, uh, of investigation. One is that of the asphalt that I share with mm -hmm. my partner. And second is that uh, the idea of promoting wild nature in the city, uh, which I think is desperately necessary. Uh, and the third thing, which is more a long-term goal, is uh, a global tourism. And then what effect, effect mass culture has on, on, on the landscape. And these three components also infiltrate the work that I do here at school. Mm. How did you get involved in teaching? Very good question. This is a long time ago. I think my first uh, studio was co-teaching with uh, Gary Hildebrand, mm -hmm. and he was also my mentor uh, when I did an independent um, studio at, in my last semester in school with Sarah Fairchild. She was our mentor. Mm -hmm. And do you see a uh, relationship between your direct teaching students and your practice? Because clearly there is with your teaching and your research. But how does that infiltrate your practice? I think it always does, because there are, to be here in school, there's such a wealth of ideas and a, and a wealth of different ways of thinking that is incredibly stimulating. And that also is a kind of framework for the, for me at least, it is a framework for the way that we think in, uh, in uh, our office. In order to be a good teacher, do you need to have a practice? No. No, absolutely not. In order to be a good practitioner, do you need to teach? No. No. So you can track out on one or the other, but yes. no. And what are the advantages? Life becomes easier if you do <laughs> one. Then That's what are the ad ad advantages of doing both? For me, for me, and I, so I speak personally, is that it really allows me to issues that I find in practice and academia to really bring that into full fruition and to think about them more on a conceptual level rather than on a pragmatic level. And I really, really like that kind of going back and forth between one and the other. Mm -hmm. What kind of advice do you give your graduating students? To go, to go, what, what's the Star Trek phrase? <laughs> to go where no one has gone before? <laughs> what's the, okay, do you, can you help uh, no, me? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> to go boldly uh, where no man has gone before. That sounds close yeah. enough. Yeah. That would be my advice. That's good. Um, and finally, to close our our discussion here, I want to do a little bit of best and worst. What is the best thing about sort of your daily your daily world in the practice of landscape architecture? The best in my daily world is my family, <laughs> <laughs> and the best in landscape architecture, I find it totally exciting if it, if I see or I'm engaged with a new idea. Mm -hmm. And whether that comes from our office or whether it comes from the outside world or from a student, I find that really exhilarating. Mm -hmm. And worse? Uh, when the roof leaks. <laughs> <laughs> or when, oh, I tell you what's the hardest, mm -hmm. okay? And I think that will remain my eternal problem, that there's not enough hours in a day to mm -hmm. do anything, to do everything that I would like to do. I, I mean, I would like to spend part of my life to be a painter. Mm -hmm. And I would like to spend part of my life to be someone who is only socializing <laughs> with all my friends and family. And I would like to spend time um, reading and writing. 
the lack of hours in a day mm -hmm. and in a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I really plan to be at least 90 years old. So <laughs> You've got a long way to go. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, Paula, it's been great having you in this program. Uh, wish you best of luck and thanks for your time. Paula Medink is an assistant professor of landscape architecture at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, as well as a founding partner in the firm Wanted. Thank you for joining us for the 10th Dispatch of Terragrams. To find out more about Terragrams and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at www.terragrams.com or subscribe to us using iTunes. Terragrams is made possible with the help of the School of Architecture at the University of Virginia, Find out more about their program at www.virginia.edu. And finally, special thanks to the books for their wonderful and very cool music. You can expose yourself more to the books at www.thebooksmusic.com. I'm Craig Verzone, and this concludes the 10th delivery of Terragrams. <laughs>